It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. The Toronto Film Festival, or TIFF, is premiering a new film this year entitled Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. This film is inspired by Robertson's best-selling memoir, Testimony, and follows Robertson's personal journey of overcoming adversity and finding camaraderie with the other four members of what would become the band. And I would also say that if you have not read Testimony, you should. It is so much more than a reflection of Robbie's life. It's a window into a different time and many of the characters that made headlines, some good, some tragic. It is a fascinating journey, almost fairy tale like in scope, but it isn't. If the film Once Were Brothers is anything like the book, it just won't stop your jaw from dropping and saying out loud, no way. My guest today was directly involved with the film and can identify directly with the story about dreams coming true and a kid from Toronto who, against all odds, envisions a life for himself where he goes out into the world and achieves artistic success in the art form he was born to pursue. Now, you might be thinking, it's Robbie Robertson. Well, not yet, but it is the director of the film, Torontonian documentary filmmaker Daniel Rohr. Daniel's story reflects a similarity in Robertson's in that he's a young and started making films very young in his own way, dropping out of Savannah College of Art and Design to pursue his own style of shorter documentaries away from what he called the other films suffering from documentary syndrome. Daniel was not the first choice to make the film for a number of reasons, including his lack of profile. But he managed to convince those involved that he had the drive, the vigor, and the chutzpah needed to pull off this film with his maxim, I'll die before this film isn't great. Danielle, shalom, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Shalom. <laughs> I'd like to add as much as we can. It's a multicultural kind of no, show we I have here. I you appreciate know? that very much. Thank you for having me. It's very good to be here it's with great. you today. It's thank great you. that you're here. And, you know, um, I, I got to say, you, as we were talking just before we went to air, that uh, you're 26. That's right. Yeah. Now, I have to say that when I was reading about this film being made, based on testimony, looking at the people involved, you you had a very uh, uh, wonderful experience of, and also, I guess, challenging experience to convince these people, like Martin Scorsese and Robbie Robertson themselves, to say, hey, I'm the guy for this. The process of making this film for me was very much uh, a, a series of impossible things becoming reality, moments where you're like, is this real life? Is this really happening? Uh, hmm. uh, coming true and, and becoming my reality. And it's very overwhelming. It's very exciting. And, and, and the entire process has very much been a, a, a phenomenal ride. So having said that, let's go back a little bit, because as I pointed out, you don't have a, a great profile. You're very young in terms of the film and documentary world. But you have done some things that have touched on the indigenous world, and you've done a little bit of traveling, and you have, I guess, your own approach that is that is that has stood out to people. Well, yeah. I mean, my approach was very much uh, 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 rooted in who I am, and, and that is to say that when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, I opted uh, to sort of uh, chart my own course, sort of. I didn't want to go to film school or, or, or go that direction. I just wanted to make films and... And I just sort of went out into the world with uh, a camera and a backpack and a computer and a, 
and just started telling stories that were interesting to me, that I were, were, was passionate about exploring historical, political um, uh, parts of Canadian history, world history that uh, I thought were particularly fascinating. And it, it was through that approach of just making these films um, and doing every job myself that I was really able to sort of hone my craft and, and, uh, and, and learn how to tell a, a compelling story. So there's lots of documentary filmmakers out there, right? And most of them, I would say, want to bring their own approach and why they're doing it is unique to them. But I guess what do you think makes you stand out? What, what made you stand out to these, to these people that are involved with, you know, once we're brothers to convince them to say, hey, this is the right guy? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a terrific question. And, and ultimately, what I think it comes down to um, is that when I had the chance to go meet with Robbie after I convinced the producers that I have to do this, because uh, I really felt it was like a, almost like a calling. It's like, oh, I have to make that film. It has to be that one. Everything about this story just spoke to me. I thought it was so extraordinary, and I knew I'd do a phenomenal job if only I could convince all these other people of that. Um, and when I eventually got the chance to go meet with Robbie, I sat across from him, and I you know, I sort of broke it down and I explained I don't have the highest profile, um, you know, but what I bring to the table that no other high profile director I'm sure would bring is this unvarnished passion and fiery energy to come in day in and day out and give this film everything I have to give. And and that was two years ago now. And so now looking at this from from uh, almost like the, the finish line as, as we're approaching our world premiere, um, you know, I take great solace, whether people love the film, hate the film, whether critics enjoy it or not. Um, you know, I don't know how it's going to be received, but what I take great solace in is knowing that I was true to that maxim that I gave this film everything I had to give. And, and it was a really extraordinary process, almost this monkish exercise to just devote my life, every single aspect of who I am into this endeavor uh, for, you know, a year and a half. And it was extraordinarily difficult. It was very, very challenging. But ultimately, um, you know, as we are about to have our world premiere opening the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, this is such an extraordinary place to be. And uh, I am just so grateful for all the people who whose shoulders I'm standing on. Mm. You said unvarnished as a way of, of sort of uh, explaining yourself or the approach you bring uh, when you were talking with Robbie. And I thought, oh, what a great word to use to a musician. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, uh, music is raw and music is real and music happens in the moment. And I think that speaks to that uh, sort of approach. Very much so. And, 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 you know, when I met with Robbie that first time, what I really tried to do and wanted to do was put a mirror up to him and be like, hey, man, I am you, but I don't want to go out and play rock and roll. I want to make films mm. and I want to tell stories similarly to, to, to Robbie in that regard. And I think he understood that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everything... Every element aspect of this film is rooted in the music. And whenever I was, um, you know, lost or didn't exactly have my bearings in terms of where we take the film or what I needed to do next, mm. I'd put on music from Big Pink or the band or Stage Fright or Cahoots. And I just, I, that was sort of like my, my guiding star. I would just go back to that place, that critical character, and, uh, and, it gave me a lot of direction and purpose, and, and it's all rooted in, in Robbie's work. You know, uh, this film being based uh, or at least inspired by testimony and the life of Robbie Robertson, uh, 
when you read testimony, as I mentioned earlier, for me at least, I couldn't. My jaw was dropping almost. Yeah, it reads every like page. fiction. It does. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, how do you bring something like that? I mean, I guess first of all, there's a lot to work with in there, right? Well, that's just it. I mean, one of the first challenges is like you you have what is it, 400 pages or mm-hmm. something like this, and distilling that to 95 minutes is is very very challenging, mm-hmm. and ultimately. Um, you know, what I had to identify was what are the moments from this man's life that are the critical, um, uh, the critical moments that need to be in the movie? Um, and then how do you reconcile that with the archival material, yeah. with, with the music, with the uh, images and all, all of this? Uh, and it was just a question of, of distilling it and, and trying to pinpoint those moments. And what's interesting is, is some of the moments and scenes that I envisioned at the beginning of the process ultimately didn't make it into the final film, inevitably. Right. And it's it's very interesting to look at my original treatments and work on the documentary and, mm. and now to see it in its final form to see how it's similar and how it's different. What kind of things are we going to see that we, we maybe didn't see or, or, you, or you go deeper into perhaps with the, the, with the film that... that you know, that was not in the in the the book, or that's a great question. I think the one of the major ways the the film, in a way, even though it's much shorter, mm. delves a little bit deeper, is that we have a mosaic of voices. Yeah. So in the book, you have Robbie telling his story, which is amazing, but in the film, you have so many other voices who were there, who can add their experience and their memories and their impressions, uh, and that's what I think is so you know, that I love so much about the film. So, for example, uh, you know, I almost feel like the heart and soul of the film is Robbie's um, ex-wife, Dominique, Dominique Mm. Robertson, uh, who is such a wonderful, extraordinary character. And Robbie writes about her in the book, but to have her sit across from me and and tell me about her memories of of those guys, her old friends, Mm. uh, was just extraordinary because she was there for all of it. She was there before the band was the band. She, Mm -hmm. She met those guys when they were on tour with Bob Dylan in right. Paris in 66. Yeah. And so having voices like that, or Jonathan Taplin, who was the band's uh, a road manager, right. yeah. or Bill Shealy, uh, who was the band's equipment manager, you know, he was extraordinary because um, he was one of these figures who, was, who saw everything. He was there for everything. He was like the band's little brother. You could almost say he was a band member. As close you? as you can yeah. be. He was an inner circle part yeah. of the family. But because he's not a big name or a big star, he is often overlooked in terms of someone to talk to. Mm. And for me, it was he was one of the magnificent interviews that I did because he saw everything. He was there for everything. And it was just like he was in the corner silently watching and and taking it all in. And 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 so interviews like that give the, the story this this... Uh, uh, power yeah. that for me was so so special, such a wonderful element of the documentary. And you also have some uh, some pretty big musical names involved as well. Yeah, that is also true. <laughs> Do you want to share with us some of those names? Yeah, I, I got the chance to uh, uh, sit across uh, and interview some really extraordinary musicians. Um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's in the film, Eric Clapton's in the film, Van Morrison's in the film, Peter Gabriel, um, uh, I, I also interviewed Carly Simon for the film. Mm. Um, so, so people like that mm. uh, who are either were either very close friends of Robbie's or were directly inspired by Robbie mm-hmm. and the band. Um, 
they were very enthusiastic to participate in this because they just have such an appreciation for Robbie's music and, and what the band did. Ultimately, uh, if you think back now, looking at this as the film is coming to fruition and, and the premiere looms closely, what did this leave you with? Well, it's a very interesting experience focusing on someone else's life so mm-hmm. intimately. And uh, and what it really taught me, the process of making this film and studying the intimate moments of Robbie's life and, and the consequential decisions he made as he w- went on his, his musical journey, what it really highlighted for me is is it i mean what i couldn't help but put a, a mirror up to my own life and you know Robbie's life is about boldness and and making great making choices that might be scary or anxiety ridden and just doing bold and cool things and when the opportunity presents themselves you seize them and uh and it's just a, a question of of viewing the life you want to have for yourself it's this idea that you know, you don't discover who you are. You invent who you are. Mm. You know, Robbie Robertson, he's this half-Native, half-Jewish kid from Toronto who decided he wanted to go be in a Southern rockabilly band. So he went and, and was in that, you know, rambling, uh, 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 you know, almost violent, gang-infused world for a number of years. And then he hooks up with Bob Dylan. He's like, oh, I'm going to be this intellectual guy. <laughs> So he goes and does that. Mm-hmm. And it's just a question of being able to facilitate yourself and, and fit in and, 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 and do great things and, and make great choices. And that's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. So it sounds like you're saying that Robbie had a, made some very conscious choices all the way along. Oh, very much so. Uh, Robbie has always been ambitious. When he was 16 years old, uh, he wanted to play with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. They were mm-hmm. the hottest band in Canada. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what he shot for. And he made that band, and they, they were together for five or six years. And then he was like, well, let's go do our own thing. But then there was this detour when this folk musician came along, mm. around called Bob Dylan. Well, Robbie and the band didn't know anything about Bob Dylan. They didn't know anything about folk music. Right. They were playing R&B, blues, yep. rock and roll, rockabilly. Yep. And Robbie identified this as a you know huge opportunity. This could be a cool detour. Let's go in this direction. Let's hook up with this guy for a second. Uh, and that's what they did. Um, and so, you know, it's just about seizing opportunities and, and recognizing, you know, when opportunities present themselves. And, and all along, he was a very sort of big film buff as well. So so he's probably always thinking in the background about uh, the film scores and those kind of things. Well, there's a great quote at the end of the film that really speaks to Robbie's vision and ambition for his mm-hmm. own life. Uh, John Simon, who was the producer of the band's first two albums and a very, very close friend of Robbie's in the 60s and 70s, um, he, he recalls saying to he recalls a conversation with Robbie where where after they recorded the first album and it did very well where Robbie said uh yeah one day I'm going to go work with Igmar Bergman mm. who is of course the you know massively influential Swedish film mm-hmm. director mm. and John Simon editorializes that and says that's a very unusual thing for a rock and roller to say I'm going to go work with Igmar Bergman right. mm-hmm. you know that's what Robbie was thinking about you know Rick Danko and and Richard and Garth right and Levon, I don't think, had interests like that or interested in film and cinema. And you, Robbie sort of alludes to that in the book a little bit, too, about the differences of, of how they look at things. Yeah, very very much so. You know, the, the big learning experience, you asked me a, a moment ago what, what I learned making this movie. And another thing I learned um, is that when I started making this film, I was making a, a documentary about my rock and roll heroes. Like, Levon Helm is mm. my hero. Mm. Robbie Robertson, he is an icon. After I watched The Last Waltz, 
those guys were mythic, right? absolute legends yeah, yeah. of the highest order. And what I realize now is that my film is about these five fragile young men who are trying to do their very best amidst very difficult circumstances, dealing with their own demons and their own addictions and their own insecurities and everything that one would have to deal with. It's a very, very human story about the fragility of creative collaboration and, uh, and of brotherhood. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest today, Daniel Rohr. He's the director of Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. It has its world premiere tomorrow at the Toronto International Film Festival at Roy Thompson Hall. So you've had a chance to meet all these people which are in their own right uh, superstars in many in many ways. Um, that must have been, was that overwhelming for you to sit across from some of these people? Um, I wouldn't say overwhelming. At uh, at times, it can be nerve wracking. Yeah. And the only reason why it's a little nerve wracking is because I have to interview them, mm-hmm. and that there's something that I need from them right. uh, for this project that I'm working on. And so, if one of those individuals is having an off day and is a mm. little grumpy, sure. you know, that's a little nerve wracking. Um, do I get intimidated just by the celebrity? Um, thankfully. I don't. Right. Uh, I. I uh, you really can't. Otherwise, you wouldn't get what you wanted out of them. Anyway. Yeah, that that's true. But it's just it, it's just I, you know I think some people get very starstruck and are mm-hmm. overwhelmed to be in the presence of someone like Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. or or whomever. But for me, it's it's you know I I he's just you sure. know a very talented guy who who's you know still has to put his pants on one leg at a time like yep. the rest of us. So uh, someone else that you mentioned, Ronnie Hawkins. He is uh, up in Peterborough, Ontario. Oh, yeah? That's great. And I interviewed him for the film. And oh, good. He's one of the stars of the movie. He's so funny and mm. just such a, a, a remarkable character from a bygone era. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the funnest interviews we shot. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's quite the character for sure. Yeah, totally. So, Daniel, uh, prior to your experience of working on this film documentary, which is kind of funny because I, I know I saw a quote about you working on things earlier, that, that the idea that um, longer documentaries fall into that uh, documentary syndrome, and now you've made this longer documentary. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but your, your uh, previous films took you to various places uh, within Canada and around the globe. You want to tell us a little bit about that background? Yeah, absolutely. So I I, uh, I have made films all over the world, um, but uh, something that has been a particular passion and focus of mine is Indigenous-focused um, stories in Canada. Why is that? And beyond. Um, well, I just think it's uh, uh, you know it's critically important that uh, that these stories are heard and shared and uh, and and brought to a wider audience. Um, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family, and uh, a lot of uh, my passion towards indigenous uh, peoples of Canada and reconciliation is rooted in the social justice values of my Jewish heritage. It's this concept of tikkun olam, which is to heal the world, and that's something that resonates very strongly with me. And and, uh, and so I've very been very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to take my skill set as a filmmaker, as a creative filmmaker, and tell stories um, that otherwise may not have been told or may not have been told as effectively um, or as artfully. Um, so one of my films is called Survivor's Row, and Survivor's Row is uh, about the most prolific sex offender in Canadian history, an Anglican minister called Ralph Rowe, who abused hundreds of Native boys, Indigenous boys, in the isolated reserves of northwestern Ontario uh, for about 20 years. 
And uh, I shot that film in Kitchener, Mexico, in Oahu, and Wapakika First Nation, and Winneman Lake, and and Winnipeg, and and a little bit in Thunder Bay. Uh, and um, uh, it features four of these extraordinary uh, uh, men who, when they were boys, were abused by uh, by this guy Ralph Rowe. And uh, and it was a film that I knew would be very difficult to make. I think I made it when I was twenty or twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it it w- was able to be seen by a wide audience, and uh, to me, it it uh, you know I was very very grateful that I could have a hand in 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 telling that story. But for a lot of stories like that, I'd made made another film in Nunavut. Um, I, I take less own ownership over the, those films than a film like you know Robbie Robertson's documentary. Those films are like belong to those guys. It's their story. It's their film. I just very much view myself as a creative conduit to be able to interpret and and help them tell their stories. What did you learn from those experiences? Well, uh, politically, I, I learned uh, about you know just seeing up close the uh, profound disparities that exist between uh, life uh, in very very rural, isolated Indigenous communities and life in a place like Toronto or even a place like Thunder Bay. Uh, and uh, how we have a lot of work to do as a, a country to uh, bridge those funding gaps and and improve the lives and experiences, uh, particularly of uh, indigenous youth uh, and and children and young people. Um, but also, I learned a lot about resilience. I learned a lot about uh, overcoming things that you know are impossible, indescribable. Um, um, you know, really, really challenging. I worked, I, I worked with men who are really far along on their healing journeys. And it really, it was a very vivid illustration to me that any problem, any issue, any, anything that I am struggling with can be overcome. And uh, that's something that I, I it, it's that, it's just this idea of resilience that I am always reminded of whenever I have visited an indigenous community. Um, you know, I come from a Jewish family, and, uh, you know, I think the Jewish people know a lot about resilience as well. And when I've gone to indigenous communities, and when you talk to elders who were in residential school or Ralph Rose survivors, um, you know, how many hundreds of years of a systematic um, attempt to dismantle and destroy the fabric of a culture, which is the fabric of a people, um, you know, it makes me feel very proud that indigenous languages are still being spoken in Canada, that we have entered an age where reconciliation, I believe, really does matter. And although we have a lot of work to do, um, even in the time that I've been really passionate about this file um, and, and about indigenous culture, uh, I have seen lots of improvement. Um, of course, I live here in downtown Toronto, and I'm not uh, living on uh, in Kitchener, Mexicopinawang, or a small community, but it just seems the spirit of reconciliation is an important one in this country, and one that I think a lot of people are really thinking about. Yeah, you mentioned resilience and how the Jewish people also have that, uh, that know something about that. I'm I'm wondering, is there? Did you see any other similarities or or differences in in from the the history of of what happened to the Jewish people of course in the second world war and you know that. well i was once uh i i really like to tell this story uh to jewish audiences and and non-jewish audiences because it it really um 
it, it means a great deal to me. I was in Resolute Bay, Nunavut, and mm. I made a film there. And one of the women who featured in the documentary was Zipporah Kaluk, who is an elder in that community and one of the matriarchs of that community, and, and a really generous and kind, a really wonderful woman. And I was sitting in her living room um, in Resolute, and uh, we were just talking, and she brought up and told me about her uh, Eskimo identification number, mm. which was a little dog tag the Canadian government issued in the 50s so they could keep track of all these Eskimos. Um, and, of course, that's a horrifying concept. And she got a little dusty shoebox out of her bedroom drawer and showed me this literal dog tag. And I explained to her that, oh, my grandfather uh, had a number as well, but it wasn't around his, his neck. It was tattooed on, on his arm. And I think she really understood what that meant. And from that moment on, um, it, it was almost like she saw me in a different light. I wasn't just another Kalunak, another white man from from the South who was coming up for whatever reason up North. Um, but she saw me as a Jewish person, as a Jewish man. And that really resonated with her. Mm-hmm. And that meant something to her. And I think she understood um, that uh, I too come from uh, a lineage of uh, a very oppressed people. And this concept of resilience that I spoke to earlier is one that I know very well. I'm very fortunate that in my own life, I have never experienced anti-Semitism or hate or bigotry of any kind. And my family, after the Second World War and even before, found a safe haven in this country. And I am very, very, very proud to be Canadian. Um, and, and we found a safe haven here. And I enjoy a, 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 you know, a phenomenal amount of privilege uh, in this society. And I feel very strongly that we all, anyone who is privileged, must, uh, uh, must use that to create more equity and, and, and harmony and balance Within, so everyone in Canada uh, is thriving just as much as I am able to. Um, and and going back to this film, what uh, are your favorite pieces of music that you uh, that we might be able to play uh, on the show? Uh, maybe as we're heading out, that that might be one of your favorites. Um, oh, it's always impossible to tell. It seems to change <laughs> from from week to week. But there's uh, one song in particular that's in the film. Uh, it's called Rockin' Chairs from the mm. band's the second album. And the reason why I, I really love it is it's it's almost like this nautical song, this like naval song. Um, and it's about this old man who's been on a, uh, you know, on the ocean sailing around for many, many, many years. And then he's coming back home to just sit on the porch and chat with his old friends and laugh with his buddies. And mm. the reason why I really like it is because I can't help but think of a 20 four-year-old, 25-year-old Robbie Robertson, this young guy sitting there in his studio writing about an old man looking back on his life. And as a documentary filmmaker, uh, you know, that means a lot to me. And and I can't help but see the similarities of of myself being a young man making this film about uh, an older man looking back on his own life. Uh, And it's a song that, that Levon Helm sings that is just, you know, gorgeous. Love that song. There's so much heart and soul in this music that just thinking about it, like I, I can feel it uh, running through my bloodstream. You made me think of a couple other things as you were speaking there. And one of them is um, working with, as, as you say, these people that are very much involved with film, yeah. music, and, and, and you're working alongside of these people. And um, 
you know, it's not like uh, you're you're dealing with people that don't know anything about the industry or about how to put stuff together and yeah. all of this kind of thing. Did that change your approach or did that change how you move things forward? Or was it very much a collaborative kind of a, an affair where they would, you know, help you with ideas or how would that work? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think for most of the film, I was very much the creative engine of it. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, I had some extraordinary collaborators here. Mm-hmm. One thing that is was really special for me getting to work on this film is that I got to work with some of my, you know, f- film heroes, mm. not not just music heroes, mm-hmm. but to collaborate with them and, yeah. and, and have them give me notes on yeah. cuts and stuff like that. And particularly, uh, imagine documentaries. This is Ron Howard and Brian Grazier's yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. When they became involved with with the the, the production, it was it, you know it for me. It was like, oh, that's where I want to be. That's the type of these are the type of films I want to be working on. It was just absolutely extraordinary, and uh, um, you know, it it, it was very much it, we had our own band. It, it was like all these different people who were working towards the shared uh, vision of making this film as strong as we could make it. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned Ron Howard and a, and a few other people. Uh, there, there's there are some big names on the back end of this as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, our executive producers are uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, Ron Howard, Brian Grazier, uh, Randy Lennox uh, here in Canada, um, and Randy has been a phenomenal supporter of the film um, uh, from day one, and I'm very very grateful for his support. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, just our production team. We had three production companies working on this film, and that's a lot of uh, cats at the milk bowl. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we worked together really well, and uh, it was in the spirit of collaboration. White Pine Pictures, uh, uh, Peter Raymont was the executive producer there, and, and he was just a, a you know, phenomenal collaborator. And, uh, and then Imagine, that I just mentioned, and, and Shed Creative uh, uh, Agency, uh, Dave Harris and... Uh, uh, and his whole team there were just, you know, uh, uh, terrific collaborators, very empowering for me. Wonderful. W- wonderful opportunity for you. Congratulations well, on thank this. Thank you very and much. And looking forward to seeing it and uh, wishing you all the best in the future with uh, your other projects and uh, looking forward to seeing some of that stuff. I'm sure that uh, this hasn't been bad for you. Uh, <laughs> no, it has been uh, so far so good. Feeling great. That's great. Uh, I'm wondering, the other, the other thing that came to mind is, Quotes. Do you have any la- a quote that came to mind from one of the interviews that you made that stuck with you? And somebody s- might have said, <laughs> "I got a Ronnie Hawkins quote that is that is able to be shared." Over yeah, the air. <laughs> I have a Ronnie Hawkins quote that comes to mind, but I don't think I should share that one on the air. Okay. Um, no worries. Listen, I, once again, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for coming in and being a part of our program. It's been great having you here. I uh, wish you all the best in the future. We we'll look forward to seeing the film and uh, and and maybe running into you there at the opening. Well, I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to chat and uh, always love to talk about Robbie and the band. So thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, our guest today, Daniel Rohr. He is the director of Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band. It has its world premiere tomorrow at the Toronto International Film Festival at Roy Thompson Hall. Don't miss it and don't go away. Up next, we have a very, very special guest, and you won't want to miss it, right after this song by the band, Rocking Chair. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. You just heard Rocking Chair by the band. I can't think of a better way to introduce uh, our next guest. Our very own Julian Taylor took the call when this man phoned in. I have to tell you that I had the pleasure of meeting Robbie Robertson twice on the Six Nations Reserve, 
And it is my pleasure to introduce you to Robbie Robertson and Julian Taylor, Element FM's Julian Taylor, who took the call when Robbie Robertson phoned the Element FM studios. Let's listen. So you've, you've got the cinematic record, and there's like a, a slew of people on this record. I mean, Van Morrison's on the record, and uh, the new single's out, and uh, inspired by uh, The Irishman, correct? Yes, I hear, I hear you paint houses. Tell us a bit about that, because that's an interesting story, too, and how Van ended up on that particular recording. Um, yeah, Van was just, you know, he calls me when he, he, I'm in Los Angeles, and when he comes to town, he calls me, and we usually uh, catch up. We're old friends. And he asked me what I was working on. I told him that I'd, I'd written this, I was writing this song, mm -hmm. and it's called I Hear You Paint Houses, and the Irishman, Scorsese's movie, is based on the book of that title, and it's an expression, a mob expression, meaning somebody in the mob going to somebody, a hitman, and saying, I have a job for you, and they do it by saying, I hear you paint houses. That's so and, crazy. Uh, so anyway, because I was working on the movie, I ended up just writing a song about that. Van comes to town. He he hears what I'm working on, and I said, you want to sing on it? He said, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up doing it together, and it was just a wonderful feeling and, the, and the, the connection of all of these things, all of these things plugging into one another is always, it just makes everything more fun. Absolutely. I mean, where did you record the record? In L.A.? Yes, I did. Whereabouts? At the studio that I've, I've been working at uh, for many years, it's uh, it's called The Village Studio. The Village Studio, because you've got some heavy, heavy players on this record. I mean, Pino alone is like, honestly, a, a bass god. And then you've got Afi from here in Toronto. He uh, He's a guitar player from uh, this city. Yeah, um, they're, they're terrific. Afi and, and they... Uh, they did some beautiful background vocals for me as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, we're mixing it up. That's great, man. Congratulations on all of this. It's nice to hear that you're back. I mean, I was such a, a fan of uh, the, the Underboy, you know, uh, your record back, um, the sec second record that came out. And obviously, we've met before. I don't know if you've known that. Um, but we met outside of the Horseshoe Tavern, and you gave me a guitar <laughs> pick. You were hanging out with Ronnie, and you gave me a guitar pick. Uh -huh. I still have the pick, you know? I put it in uh, behind one of my CDs, uh, one of the band CDs, but um, very cool. I love Under uh, Underworld of I Red Boy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Wore it out, you know? So when do you, uh, <laughs> when, when, when does this all record come out? It comes out September 20th, it says. The and... record comes out September the 20th, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then like a month after that, there's the 50th anniversary of the band, uh, collector's edition, which we've been working on for months, putting together, and it's turned out so beautiful. What is this? Sorry, graphs in it, and it also has it has the recording of the band live at the Woodstock Festival, which has never been released. Before. That's never that's been a released. bonus on the crazy. package. So that's terrific too. That's amazing. What was what's what's in that set? Can you tell us, or do we have to wait? Well, the, there is amazing photographs from that period, and some of them, uh, they're, they're in lithograph form, 
and and the, and the we have I remixed the whole record with Bob Clearmountain. Mm-hmm. There's bonus tracks on it, and like I said, there's the whole Woodstock performance of the band that's never been released before, and there is also a documentary. Um, a DVD of a documentary that they did called The Making of the Band. Um, and it's terrific, too. So I'm, I'm very proud of this collection. You should be. I mean, you've, you've been such an influence on so many people. I told my mom I was going to interview you today, and she started to scream. It was great. You're, she's a very, very big fan. I know we don't have a lot of time, um, and that's, that's great. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, if you're ever... Um, you know, st- strolling about the beach area, come and, and say hi to Element FM. I'm sure that uh, people are going to love this movie, um, Once We Were Brothers. I've, I I can't wait to see it, personally, because you've been uh, an influence oh, on my I, life. I'm just thrilled with the way that it turned out, and the fact that it's opening the Toronto Film Festival, which they've never opened it with a documentary before. I don't, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, you should be. I don't think they've ever opened it with a Canadian film before, actually. There you go. Yeah, and and Mar- Martin's involved in this, and so is Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, and yeah, you've, you've Martin known either. is an executive producer on it, and Ron Howard's an executive producer, and yeah, we have just a great team that was that came together for this. So uh, I can't wait for you to see it. I can't wait, Robbie. Thank you so much, and uh, you are an inspiration to us all. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you, Julian. It was fun talking with you. Take care. You too. Ciao. Once again, of Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band, it has its world premiere tomorrow at the Toronto International Film Festival at Roy Thompson Hall. Don't miss it. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.